Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Jason Everett. Thanks for having me on. And Jason has a new book out called Male, Female, Other, A Catholic Guide to Understanding Gender. Thanks for taking the time. No, I appreciate it. I mean, obviously, it's a topic on everybody's minds. You can't even open the, the news without even five, six stories every single day of the direction things are heading. So a lot of people feel puzzled, not quite sure what to say or what to do about it. So when talking to people about gender theory, it seems like everybody's kind of coming at this from a different angle. And it can be sort of a temptation for those of us who maybe are trying to engage with the culture to just see them coming in from one place or the other. But how do we triage to tell whether the person across the table from us is maybe individually suffering with gender discordance mm-hmm. or gender dysphoria or something, yeah. or who's genuinely concerned about someone close to them who's suffering, or maybe they're unclear about what to think generally, but kind of sympathetic to the claims of those who are suffering, who maybe they hear about, or whether they're like actively pro-trans, you know, they're going to pride marches, that thing, or yeah. maybe they're like militantly opposed to Christian anthropology in itself, which I imagine is pretty rare. Like, how do we, how do we tell the difference? Because I think sometimes it's, it can be hard. I remember one evangelical author pointing out that more often than not, the people who are experiencing gender dysphoria aren't so much culture warriors. They're more casualties of the culture war. And so yeah. I think it's important that we not look at this as simply, okay, this is an ideological battle that we need to disprove and we need to win and shut down this heresy and save the world. It's like, okay, well, I mean, yeah, it, there is an ideology going on here of gender theory that needs to be addressed with authentic Catholic anthropology, but we need to distinguish gender theory from individuals who experience gender dysphoria. And I think if we don't make a clear distinction there and we kind of just fold it all into one, a lot of the people who experience, you know, these inclinations, these struggles may think, okay, you're just trying to disprove me. You're trying to attack me. You're trying to prove that I don't exist, that I'm not real, that my feelings are not authentic. And and so obviously they could take it real personally if we're not distinguishing the individuals who experience gender dysphoria from the claims of gender theory. And so how do you know where the person's coming from? Well, there's only one answer. Listen to them. Get to know them, have coffee with them. You know, it's not like, okay, I need to read your mind. It's like, no, I need to sit down, have a beer with you and get to know you as a human being. And there's no shortcut to that. And I think we need to be very careful for trying to find one. Now, when we need more human relationships here, it's almost as if the people that are advocating for gender theory spend a lot of time with individuals experience that inclination but they don't think a lot about Catholic anthropology. But then the people who are spending a lot of time thinking about Catholic anthropology basically don't spend any time with the people wrestling with gender dysphoria. And so we need to build some real bridges here, get to know one another, listen well, then we'll know where they're coming from. Yeah, and it's tempting because sometimes the internet can seem like a shortcut to that across the table, but it doesn't actually provide real listening and getting to know the person usually. Mm -hmm. Everyone's familiar with how easily it can lead to miscommunication. Yeah, and there's no shortcut. I got an email this morning from a gentleman who's been wrestling his whole life with gender dysphoria. And he said to me that sometimes when he reads documents that the church put out on this, he said, it sounds like they're talking about an alien. It sounds like like you don't even know what you're talking about in terms of my lifestyle and this and that. Like, I just feel like you don't know us as a community. And, you know, I spoke to him about that of just like, hey, you know, I, I understand that. And we're working on it. You know, we there's no shortcut. We need to spend time 
time getting to know you, your struggles, so that we're not misrepresenting your beliefs, your lifestyle, or this or that. Um, and that's why it's very important. We know that in, in order to proclaim what the church teaches on this, we first need to listen, not for the sake of caving in on what the church's teachings and compromising. No, but how do you really speak to somebody if you don't really know that person? And so we've got to spend that time. Yeah, that's a compelling kind of criticism is like the church is talking about me like an alien. Mm -hmm. And I wonder like what it is that in the communication of some of its members that triggers that sort of alienation. Well, it could be very subtle language in terms of like, you know, individuals who choose to live this way. It's like, well, well time out. You know, that immediately could send some major anaphylactic reaction. They're like, wait, choose to live this way? Like, I didn't ask for these inclinations. I've felt this way since as long as I can remember. I was four or five years old feeling like I was in the wrong body. And you're telling me I chose this. Why would anyone want to choose this type of stuff? Like it could launch them on, on, on this, this big tangent of like, well, no, no, we didn't mean you're choosing to feel this way. We're meaning you choosing to dress that way. And so it's almost like, I think the church's language on this is going through puberty in a sense that like, we're going to have a cracking voice. It's going to be a little gangly. It's going to be a little awkward. And we went through this as a church with the topic of homosexuality maybe 15 years ago where it's like okay well here's how to speak on this and now i mean i even read some of the things that i wrote on the subject 15 years ago and it was really tone deaf it was really like okay that's not really going to help so but as the years went on and i spent so much more time with individuals who experience same-sex attraction, I've realized, okay, that, that's not going to land real well on their heart. If you phrase it this way, you're not compromising what the church teaches, but you're helping them to understand, okay, I know where you're coming from. I know you didn't choose this. I don't think there's any subject as much as gender that requires as much nuance. I can't even think of one in the church that requires as much nuance. It's a very mystifying terrain that we're walking into here of like, well, what is this non-binary, gender-fluid, trans woman? I mean, the inclination a lot of people have, just dismiss it. Oh, this is just nonsense. It's either XX or XY. That's all there is to it. And they just want to dismiss the whole thing because it's hard to understand. But that just makes the person who perhaps identifies as trans feel invisible or attacked. Yeah, it seems like maybe part of the reason it's so difficult in such a nuanced conversation is because it's such an individualized mm -hmm. thing. Everyone seems to experience it differently. And so the effort to kind of put them in a box or even a, even a box that's denoted by a certain, you know, collection of initials is lumping too much together and leaving out too much of the individual part of the individual story. Yeah, I remember watching a, uh, it was a Facebook, uh, like a group meeting. It was a group video meeting of a bunch of individuals in the trans community who had lost loved ones during the past year. That was kind of the theme of this get together. And they were all kind of sharing their stories on how hard it is and then to lose their loved ones, how hard it is themselves to find gainful employment and this and that. And I was watching this hour plus long discussion they were all having. And then at one point, the mood kind of lightened. And one of the guys there was like, you know what? He's like, I don't know if it's just me, but he said, all these new names and initials and titles and genders. He's like, I don't even understand half of them. Like, And he just started rattling <laughs> off different names. And then they all started laughing together. Like, I don't understand it either. And I'm trans. And like, they just had this really funny bonding moment. It just made me like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not the only one here who's having a hard time wrapping their mind around some of these concepts. And so even those within that community were puzzled by the multiplicity of preferred pronouns that are now coming out. It's like, okay, this is all new terrain. And so but it's, it's almost like learning a new language in the sense that if you fall in love with someone, they speak a different language, 
you probably want to get to know that language, not for the sake of perhaps making it your own native tongue, but for the sake of having a fruitful dialogue. Yeah. And if I had, you know, me coming as just a, just a guy coming into that meeting and saying the same sort of things that that person was that you were referring to, you mm-hmm. know, I don't think it would have been received nearly no. as no, no, <laughs> sympathetically, yeah. right? Like, yeah. Because of, you know, where he was coming from. Um, and they had that level of trust with him. Yeah. Um, even though it was, it could have been the same exact content. Yeah. So do you think that like triage is even the right mentality to have going in when, you know, entering into one of these conversations? The phrase that I try to use when approaching the subject is uh, listening to gender dysphoria with reverent curiosity. And what I mean by that is not just obeying gender dysphoria for wherever the heck it's going to lead us, but for the sake of, okay, what, what's the underlying story here? You know, what's going on? And everybody's kind of got their own. And, and there are common threads when you look at things like rapid onset gender dysphoria or autogynephilia, these different terms that have come up within psychology to explain some common trends we're seeing. Now, those are real. But in the same respect, everybody's got their own story. I remember meeting one boy in Texas and he said, I'm, I'm trans. And we started talking to this high school. And uh, tell me about your family. And he just started opening up and he said, well, I've got two older sisters and two younger sisters. And he said, but you know what? They can do no wrong for my parents. They are doted upon and loved over and fawned over. But me, it's like I'm the black sheep of the family. And I, I got straight A's. I'm on a swim team, mixed martial arts, but nothing I do is ever good enough for my parents. And I said, well, do you think if you were born a girl, then you would have been loved the way your sisters are loved? And he looked at me and he said, I know I would have been. And to me, it's like, okay, here we are. His crave is not to be female. His crave is not to hurt his body with hormones and surgeries. His crave was to be loved. And he saw a feminine identity as his pathway to find that paternal love. And that's his particular story. Now, everybody's story is unique. And I'm not saying that like, if you just get to the root of it, all the dysphoria just goes away. I mean, it doesn't work like that, but these stories deserve to be listened to, not just so we can understand them, but I think it's important for them to better understand themselves. That's why like when the biggest gender clinic in the United Kingdom, this Tavistock clinic is just getting shut down now. Uh, It's being fractured into regional smaller clinics with a focus uh, on more on mental health. Before the Tavistock was shut down, 35 of their psychologists quit. They said, we are not going to be part of this anymore. You are not allowing us uh, to investigate these issues on a deeper psychological plane. Because there was like too much pressure to just move them through the system and progress them to different levels of treatment, right? Yeah. There's one diagnosis. You are trans. And then there's one pathway of treatment, which is transition. And then the next, and then the next, and the next. It wasn't like, okay, maybe there's more to the story here. Maybe there's a high functioning autism and depression and anxiety and trauma and all this. Like, we don't have time for that. Next, next, next. And so 35 of their own psychologists quit because of this. Yeah, I know. It seems like there there are extremes on both sides that have their own reasons for not really wanting to take the time to listen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. One other obstacle to Catholics' engagement on this has to do with sort of the perception that uh, we're denying that trans people exist. Like, because we, mm-hmm. you know, we have philosophical issues with some of the terminology about what it means to quote unquote be trans. But then the the argument that some people will make in response is that it's uncharitable to deny that trans people exist because nobody questions the existence of cisgendered people, quote unquote, yeah. cisgendered people. So what do we make of that that approach? 
Well, one, we got to look at the, the power of language to sculpt thought. Uh, the deconstructionist idea is that language is not simply used to describe reality. Language can kind of create reality. And we're seeing this in terms of the trans movement, that if we just simply add the word trans as a prefix to another word, you can actually create a new ontological status. But when God speaks, things come into existence. When human beings speak, we make noise. This is like a really big difference. And, mm-hmm. and it becomes more clear when you look at people that are identifying as transable or even transracial, trans age. And, and so to take the same argument, well, you don't deny the existence of cisracial people. Why would you deny the existence of transracial people? It's like, wait a minute. Okay, time out. This is where language is trying to sculpt reality of claiming that there can be transracial people like that guy, Ollie London, who's now, you know, detransitioning, but he identified as Korean. And I think he had 23 reconstructive facial surgeries because they identified as transracial. Some people are identifying as trans age. And it's like, well, do you hate these people? Or are you trying to erase these people? It's like, well, no, 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 I, I don't, I don't hate them. Well, then why won't you let them transition their age or their race? Well, it's, well, it's not about permission. This is about possibility. It's a, the yeah. fact that biology is not bigotry. And so it's not the truth church that wants to erase these people. I think we need to understand on a deeper level, the devil is not only the enemy of our souls, the devil is the enemy of our human nature. And so what God has joined together, he wants to rupture. So if God has joined a husband and wife, he wants divorce. God joins the body and the soul. He wants death. But if God has joined who you are as a person from your identity, and we can rupture that, the identity from the body, we can rupture that, then Male doesn't really mean anything anymore, nor does man or father or priest or family. Everything is up for grabs here. And so the Mm -hmm. church's goal is not to erase the identity of these people, but to defend the identity of these people. It's the devil that wants you to erase your authentic identity and the church that's just trying to stand in the gap there to defend the identity. But I, I understand the idea that if you're saying that I'm not trans, then you're saying all of my feelings, all of my experiences since I was five years old and I felt this way, that that's not real, that I'm just making this up, that I'm not a human being sitting in church next to your family and you don't even know I'm here. I could understand how it would make them feel erased or invisible. But the church's goal is not to say you don't exist as a category of human beings. The church is simply trying to say that we exist as a sexually dimorphic species, male and female. Our beliefs about that do not create a new ontological status, that it's now male, female, other, this or that, and that there's hundreds of different identities. The church is trying to reclaim the deepest truth of our identity without trying to make you feel erased. Yes, your experiences are real. You did not make this up. The church is not saying you don't exist. The church is saying that your identity is not trans any more than my identity is cis. Your identity (laughs) is your beloved child of God, and that's the deepest truth of your identity. That's that's such a funny one, because I think the first time a lot of people hear the term cis or cisgendered, they hear what it means that you identify as what your, you know, your biological sex is. And I think most people just kind of go along with it like, okay, I guess I don't have any problem with that. But, you know, I was thinking about this as we were getting ready to have this conversation. And I thought, wait a minute. That doesn't actually apply for a couple of reasons. One, it breaks the cardinal rule of advocacy or one of the cardinal rules of advocacy. Labels should be generated by the group themselves and not by some outside group. But none of us as quote unquote cisgendered people came up with this term. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of the labels are intrinsically problematic. I mean, you think of non-binary 
It's yeah. like, well, wait a minute, that's self-defeating in itself. Because if you're non-binary, that means everybody is either binary or non-binary, which just creates another binary, making non-binary people binary. I mean, it's just like <laughs> you start running in circles over this. And it's not to make light of a person who doesn't feel comfortable identifying as male or female or finds himself somewhere in between or outside these identity categories. It's like, okay, this is obviously difficult language to walk through because it's so easy to kind of step on a minefield and yeah. you feel it feels like you're blowing up. It's like, what, what did I say? The sensitivity that's required here is almost like treating a burn victim. Mm -hmm. That what you might think about, well, that doesn't hurt. Well, touch that on someone who's, you know, had a significant wound there. And it's like, whoa, the yeah. reason you see the anaphylactic reactions here is because a lot of these new labels of whether it be trans, non-binary, this or that, not only is the person's identity, it's also their community and it's their mission. And so by questioning that, to them, it feels like you're pulling everything away. You're pulling my identity, right. my community, my mission. You're stripping it all away from me. That's why you get these massive anaphylactic reactions when we feel like, no, I'm just trying to make a point here. So we've got to realize the sensitivity uh, before we wade into some of these topics. We were talking about that a couple of months ago with Mary Eberstadt, who talks mm -hmm. about yeah. sort of eroding family connections and that these kind of chosen communities are sort of filling the void there. And it doesn't have to be just in this case, people's like political affiliations left or right are taking the place of family connections too. So whenever, whatever that chosen circle is when that's attacked, even if it's a completely level-headed criticism, it feels like an attack on who you are and your family, the people you care about most. Mm -hmm. And so the reaction is not necessarily going to be so discursive and linear and intellectual. Yeah. And it's interesting looking at some of the young adolescent females who are identifying, you know, as non-binary or trans or whatever. The studies that have been done show that they tend to come from more upper to middle, middle class, progressive, Caucasian families. And, you know, you don't have a minority status there. But then all of a sudden, once they claim this, then all of a sudden they can claim minority status. All of a sudden they are the victimized minority. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you're, you're upper middle class, you're Caucasian, you're this, you're that, you've got everything going for you. And now you've identified into a victimized minority. And, and it's a, Abigail Schreier wrote a terrific book called uh, Irreversible Damage, where she takes a deep dive into the trends that we're seeing here on this rapid onset gender dysphoria, where these kids, for the most part, did not have a pre-existing history of childhood gender dysphoria. It kind of just sprouted out of the blue when they're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old and they're in the community of friends at school and one comes out as non-binary, the next one's trans. Before you know, there's seven of them on campus wanting to transition. And for a lot of the parents, like, where the heck did this come from? Just out of left field. And But as I had mentioned, everybody's story is unique. Some of them have had this experience since as early as they could remember. Other people, it's tied to more sexual attraction and fetishes. Other people, it has nothing to do with that. So that, that's why it really needs to be approached pastorally, I think, on a case-by-case -case basis. Be sure to tune in next time for episode 116, where Jason and I will finish our conversation about his book, Male, Female, Other, and the many issues that he's addressing in that book. In the meantime, you can check out chastity.com gender for that book, along with a ton of other resources to help talk about these issues. And we are back to chat about Inside Out with Kara Bach. Kara, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. 
Inside Out is a Pixar film from 2015 directed by Pete Docter and Ronnie Del Carmen. And we thought it might be a good idea to uh, talk about this in advance of Pixar's new film, Elemental, which is going to be coming out soon. And it sort of seems like these movies, at least on the surface, seem kind of similar in terms of like the mm-hmm. color palette and like there's, you know, neatly segmented classes of characters um, mm-hmm. that are reflected in their outward appearance, right? But there's going to be like more to it and it's going to be deeper than initially appears. At least that, that's the hope with Elemental. I don't, I don't know how that one's going to turn out. I mean, I feel like that's basically the underlying premise of all Pixar movies. Like, yeah. don't worry, we've got something more here for you. Although I was, I feel like, is this the first one we've done since Soul? I feel like neither of us were super impressed with Soul. So we did Coco and this forms sort of, oh, that's true. yeah, and this forms sort of like an accidental trilogy of like abstract anthropological movies reflecting on some aspect of human nature. And if you want to go back and check our conversations on Soul and Coco, those are episode 61 and episode 80, um, which we'll have uh, links to those in the episode notes. But uh, yeah, when when this movie first came out, uh, some people were saying like, okay, Pixar's, here's Pixar's thing, like Toy Story, what if toys had feelings? Bugs Life, what if bugs had feelings? And this one is, what if feelings had feelings? <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's kind of the main pitch. And I think it's an interesting challenge to try and visualize somebody's interior life, which is what this movie does. It It is sort of, at least partly, attempting to explain a human being. Her name's Riley. She's 11 years old. And her internal processes and how those change with the painful preteen maturation process. <laughs> Trying not to alliterate too much here. What, what this movie does is it gives each of the major emotions, according to this movie's account of it, their own character motivations, like they're their own people. There's Joy, who's the main character, who's sort of like Riley, but not quite like Riley. And then the other emotions, which we'll get into in a little bit. Kara, had you seen this movie before? Yeah, strangely, I've actually seen this movie several times, and I have watched most of the behind-the-scenes footage as okay. well. So your comment about it being difficult to conceptualize visually the internal world was something that is actually like if you're into behind the scenes and kind of like how do you come up with this definitely worth a watch i thought it was very interesting and it was a a big challenge that they had it was definitely like this was a movie that took them a long time to incubate and get all of the little ideas to really be in a form that was like yeah we're ready to move forward so super interesting yeah, and they did they did consult a lot of scientific research, um, especially a psychologist named Paul Ekman. The research they consulted came up with all sorts of different answers on how many basic emotions are there. I saw that mm. the range was as few as three and as many as 27 basic emotions. <laughs> Depends on how basic you want to be, I guess. But of course, like this is still a movie and we shouldn't expect like utter rigor. So they, they had to sort of settle on a you know, a number, a small number of characters that was manageable in a two-hour movie. So this uh, psychologist, Paul Ekman, he had six that he listed as kind of the basic emotions, but they combined two into one. So he had surprise and fear separately, and Pixar combined those two into just fear. And then the other ones are sadness, disgust, anger, and the main character, Joy. And now again, Kara, I want to reiterate up front, I know it's just a movie. It's for kids. I get it. We shouldn't take it too seriously. I understand. However, (laughs) among kids' movies, this is influential highbrow stuff. And parents use this to to help their kids, like, 
communicate about what's going on inside, which is largely good and healthy. But if taken too far with some of this stuff, I think the flaws could lead people astray about what it means to be human. This is why I'm here today, good bread, <laughs> for however, how many years have we been doing this podcast? At least two, maybe almost three. From the beginning, I was like, oh, Inside Out. Good bread's like, I have thoughts about Inside Out. And I'm like, I need to hear these thoughts. And all you tell me is that it offends your Timistic heart, and I need, <laughs> I need to know more. <laughs> okay, so I was talking a big game before, because this is only the second time I've seen this movie, and I, I am not as dead set against the message of this movie as I was the first time I saw it. <laughs> More pro this time. All right. All right. I still lay it on me. I want to, I feel like there's a big caveat that at least needs to get out. All right. So Aquinas does write about the emotions quite a bit. His treatise on the mm-hmm. passions in the, in the Summa is like pretty substantial. Like one, one thing that makes the round that's, that's pretty notable and doesn't sound like somebody writing in the 13th century is his remedies for sadness. Things like taking a bath is like a thing that he recommends for alleviating sadness, not like, you know, reading Bernard of Clairvaux or something. <laughs> so, you know, he, he is not like a cold, emotionless robot. He can be an extremely deep scholarly thinker and still engage with the world of emotions. And so mm. for him, his account of the, the most basic emotions, the ones that all the other ones fall under, isn't too different from Ackman's account. Ekman had six, Aquinas has four. And Aquinas divides them in a different way, like for different reasons. So two have to do with the future, either the future expectation of a good being present, and we call that hope, in an emotional sense, That's he, this is distinct from the theological virtue of hope. Mm. And then there's, well, fear, which is the opposite of hope, expectation that a good will be absent or that an evil will be present. So that's two. And then the, those are the future-oriented ones. And then the present-oriented ones are sadness, either a good is absent from me currently or an evil is present to me currently. Still joy, which is the good that is present to me. So three of Aquinas's four match the five that are in this movie. And I, I think it's funny. Um, so we got, on Thomas's side, we got joy, sadness, fear, and hope. And on Pixar's side, we got joy, sadness, fear... And then instead of hope, we have disgust and anger, which is weird that Aquinas' version is more optimistic than the kids' movie. So, okay, although I do wonder, I don't know if this was in any, like, supplemental materials, but Mm -hmm. it felt like anger was just a comic relief more than anything, which I sort of wonder if that's, like, an intentional thing where it's like, oh, maybe anger is not really one of these core emotions. It's... I mean, I feel like I always learned growing up that like anger is a result of something else. Yeah. And it's not really like a core emotion of its own. Right. So I I thought that was an interesting choice. And then it's like it ends up being like not a real emotion. It ends up being this like, yeah, just sort of like an instigator for comedic effect. And I I think some of that comes from the the story requirements like that, you Mm. know, at one point in the movie, joy and sadness go off on their own quest. And then the other three, fear, disgust and anger are kind of stuck in headquarters trying to figure out how to run the show in in the absence of joy. And by run the show, I mean, operate the controls of Riley's personality inside. And they're supposed to be kind of hapless, right? Because if they could solve the problem the way hope might, 
be more constructive in that in that sense. Um, <laughs> you know, they they need to not be able to solve the problem so that joy and sadness can figure out how to solve it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think that makes sense. And for Aquinas, you're you're absolutely right. Like anger for him is kind of a role player that mm. shows up when he needed to overcome some obstacle or to attempt mm. to overcome some obstacle. But when the obstacle, like you understand or you perceive that you can't overcome it, you don't get angry. You don't get angry at a hurricane. You're either afraid of it coming or you get sad that it took your house away or whatever. Mm. Right. But you don't really get angry at it because what, what are you going to do? There's no agency involved or like yeah. possibility of change. Yeah. So, yeah, for, for him, anger is always, you know, in between two more important, bigger emotions. Stemming from one that sort of gets the ball rolling interiorly and it winds up at another one, either joy or sadness, really. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a bit about the, the basic emotional breakdown, which I remember being worse than it actually was. Or I remember objecting to it uh, more <laughs> when I first saw it. I don't, I don't <laughs> think it's a big deal. I think it's, I think it's an okay breakdown. I understand why Hope can't be a major role player as a character who is like, as helpful as joy and sadness are. Yeah. Well, it's also kind of, it can feel one note in terms of characters in this particular world, right? It's like, oh, how do you distinguish between joy and hope yeah. and like present and future? And we'll give them a pass. Um, yeah, we're, we're cutting them some slack on that one. Good for them. Like Pixar is saying to kids, let's help you understand what's going on inside by imagining little characters who are responsible for different facets of your personality. Because like... Part of the experience of being a kid, and Carrie, you know this way better than me, having an 18-month-old, <laughs> you kind of feel like you're at the mercy of forces inside yourself that you can't really control. I feel like, frankly, as an adult, there are times when like, I feel like I have been able to identify within myself the times where I'm like, oh, I have just learned how to manage this. But like, there's still times where I'm like, yeah, I'm not happy that I didn't get that food that I wanted to right now because I'm really in the mood for it. And it's like, yeah, you know, like deep inside, I have some two-year-old tantrums that want to break out, but it's like, I have, you know, a prefrontal cortex that allows me to think my way through. Like it is completely illogical to be that upset about like something really inconsequential just because I'm in a bad mood this morning. <laughs> To that point, I think that's actually one of the things I really appreciated about this movie is just that it felt like it was written by people who have kids in a way where it's like, yeah, you know, as an adult, you'd be like, yeah, Riley, really awful decision making here, champ. That was that was real wild. But for an 11 year old who is, you know, essentially going through like a big upheaval and just like experiencing a lot of emotions, I thought it was like a very true journey to like just you know the impulse and the like the things that she was kind of dealing with yeah although i do i can't quite remember i watched this a little bit ago but what was your impression i guess i i don't really remember her like turning around being a case of like the intellect sort of taking over it felt like that was also emotional and i feel like that was kind of the one piece where i was like this doesn't really they're like that's not how we like the, it, putting an overemphasis on the pure emotional part and there's just like no rational portion to this, even though she's 11, like she does have a rational soul, you know, and she does have some ability to control it. Like she's not two. Yes. 
Thank you. That is one of my big beefs that I still have with this movie, which is the only drivers inside Riley's personality are emotions, period. And like biological forces that seem to just happen where it's like, this is the way the brain works. You're like, okay. That's another beef I have. So you, okay, you're, okay. you're going through two. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's now you guys know we did not debrief before this episode. This is purely, I wanted to know what good bread thinks. But. <laughs> um, but like in the control room, in HQ, there are five people who are at the controls. Four of them answer to joy, but they're all emotions. And there's no personification of intellect. There's no personification of will. It's just all emotion all the time, which I think is maybe not fair. I think... I think you're right in that this movie paints a pretty reasonable picture of an 11-year-old, but I don't think that's fair to a kid that age because there is still some ability to think straight and some moral responsibility. I don't think 11-year-olds came away from this movie feeling insulted, uh, like they were being portrayed as totally emotionalistic or anything. But if you really want to paint a fuller picture... I'm not saying it should only be intellect and will, like emotions should definitely be present in that, in that mix. But to not have intellect and will at all in HQ is just strange to me. Now I get it's not the story they were trying to tell and it would have been too many characters, but could I, could I at least get a door opening in HQ at the end of the movie where like intellect is behind the desk sipping coffee? Like, I was wondering if you guys were ever going to figure this out or something mm. like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just, you know, give me some, some nod that there's something higher. Yeah. And instead, what we have is this kind of industrial theme which is responsible for all of the cause and effect inside Riley's personality that is not done by the emotions. Because, like, they don't control everything. Far from it. Mm -hmm. When she's forming new memories and those balls sort of follow their little course, like, there are little slots that open up in the wall that shoot the balls either to the rest of the memories or the core memories. And why those slots open up is kind of mysterious to us and is never really explained. It's just how it works. Mm. And there's a lot of the movie that's like that, like, even as, you know, they kind of basically, I was the plot being that joy and sadness get sort of lost deep in the brain. And so they're like inaccessible to Riley. And so they're like trying to find their way back to HQ. And in this, you go through like a long journey of like all the different pieces of the brain. And I think this is where it's like, it's very interesting the way that they visualized very like esoteric ideas, but yeah, I agree with you that it's like it all it makes it all seem like the brain and the mind is like totally mechanized. I know that this is like a very common tension and like, what is it? Philosophy of the mind and kind of like, you know, is our brain just a bunch of like neurons going? You can like abstract away the human part of being human, yeah. which is like we're not just machines. This definitely feels like more of a we're a very sophisticated machine kind of personification of humans. Yeah, I think it's telling that, you know, the people at Pixar making this movie, their day to day is spending a lot of time around computers. And Mm. I think some of that might have made it into this movie and they might have shaped that in the, you know, the image of their common everyday experience, which maybe resonated with a lot of audience members because that's common for a lot of people, even if they're not computer graphic animators. I have a hard time believing it would have worked this way for an 11-year-old 500 years ago, right? Mm. You know, that that sort of mechanistic framework only makes sense to us now. 
and it's still like, why do the islands just kind of collapse and then reconstitute seemingly on their own? Mm. Why is the train of thought, which is a great pun, by the way, that there is a literal thought train in this. And that's as close as you get to the intellect, but it's impersonal. It's just seemingly like on predetermined rails mm. as if like she can't decide what to think about or get distracted or something. Mm -hmm. I have an idea, not fully fleshed out. But if the whole dynamic had been rendered more like naturalistically, and this goes back to some of the human ecology stuff that we talked about in some other episodes where instead of like an industrial theme, like the memories are these little marbles rolling around machinery, if each memory or each moment in a memory was like a blade of grass that sprouts up when a new memory is formed mm -hmm. and you look really closely at the blade of grass and you see the little memory replaying like you see with the marble and it's whatever color. And you zoom out and you have a vaguer sense of that kind of longer period of time. You know, you could see the whole field in the background, but you don't, you know, when I ask you to remember your childhood, you don't remember every five minute section of your childhood, right? You have to zoom yeah. in on something that is more concrete. So if I ask you, like, what was the mascot of your high school, for instance? We were the Grosial Red Devils. It's a <laughs> very <Sorry>. unfortunate. <laughs> and now it might be easier for you to remember now that you zoom in a little bit more yeah. to look at some of those individual blades of grass and think about what it was like pulling up to high school in the morning, seeing that, you know, the mascot on the sign or going to a high school football game. And you maybe you remember a particular high school football game and that mascot or something. And you got to zoom in that way. Whereas the memories here, they don't, they're just kind of these these marbles that you can pluck one off the shelf and put it on another shelf and they don't fit together in any particular way. Mm. And I just, I think that would have made more sense. And, you know, one thing that's really important about this movie is memories fading. Mm. You know, some things get forgotten, they get moved to long-term memory and then they fade away. I, like, I think that works pretty well here. But mm -hmm. if grass or if plants don't get watered, you kind of have an idea of what happens to them. They fade away like memories. So if our natural surroundings were kind of mirrored interiorly, I think that might have worked better. And the cause and effect might have made more sense to audience members so that mm. you had an idea of what to expect, what not to expect, that kind of thing. It would have worked for the personality islands too, because you would have had like, you know, earthquake fault lines opening up instead of these like kind of carnival lands that just kind of stand on their own. Yeah. That's my, my rough idea of what it could have been like. One thesis. Yeah. I think the one thing that did resonate with me that I'm not sure how it would fit into your, maybe they're, tr maybe they're like big trees that are in the landscape. It's like, I think that the core memory thing is definitely one of those things where it's like oh man even now just like i have some very like really particular memories and like they're probably like stories that were told a lot or like we have a photo of it or like there's some reason why that is a thing that is a touch point or mm -hmm. just like a really impactful piece of a year but it was also interesting because it's like they had these core memories but in a way i feel like the core memories were kind of I don't know. I feel like it was like the personality traits were more like, I like hockey as opposed to like some deeper meaning, right? Where it's like, I mean, I, you kind of at the end, I think maybe you could put together the threads of like, the reason why she really likes hockey is because her parents were into it. And there's this like family moment and yeah. times that she connected with her family, but like a pond in the backyard. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, it felt like I was connecting those dots more than the movie was connecting those dots, though. <laughs> Yeah, I, what what makes a core memory like? Because they they all look like marbles to me. 
Mm-hmm. Like, why was this one special? Other than it's like in a special container in the middle. Yeah. And if you represent them not as like products on an assembly line, but as living things, then there's mm-hmm. some room for, you know, this one, maybe it's like a big tree instead of a blade of grass or something. Because I think the, the human ecology part that's important to underscore is that your interior life is not an assembly line. You're allowed to have different experiences of different quality and they don't, they're not all comparable one-to-one, which I don't think this movie is saying either, but the visual language of it doesn't get that point across. Yeah, what's interesting is like, it's something that I think, you know, as Catholics, you definitely need to grapple with is just the reality of like the body does work in a particular way. Yeah. And, you know, that that has an influence in the way that we like experience the world, experience our spiritual life. And also we are embodied beings and that matters, but we are also not simply subject to the machinations of our bodies. There's a lot more to talk about in Inside Out, so be sure to stay tuned for next episode for part two of both my conversation with Jason Everett and Kara's and my discussion of Inside Out. In the meantime, be sure to share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.